Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. While you can test with production data, that data is often sensitive or doesn't reflect every possible scenario that might come up, especially with new changes. If you want to avoid unexpected problems, then you need to be able to generate realistic data to use in testing workflows. In this episode, we're going to discuss the generation of realistic test data for an application and why it's harder than it might seem. But before we get started, Will, what's been testing you this week? Uh, GitHub actually has been kind of irritating me a little bit this week. It's, It's nothing bad. It just, it blows my mind that I can't organize projects in folders on there and go, hey, these are like my active projects. These are inactive. Just it, just in yeah. the UI. Like, how did we get this far without this functionality? I just find that really strange. IDK. Yeah, because I've got a bunch of crap up there. And I've been like trying to move it around and get it organized on my machines and, you know, fixing scripts and stuff like that. Just, you know, because I'm kind of in that closing of the year cleanup phase and like not really trying to do anything new much. And then I was like, Oh, I'll I'll clean up GitHub. It's like, Oh, you can't. It's just flat. Uh, That's obnoxious. Yeah. Like how, why didn't they do that? It's really strange. So how about you? Well, like I was, I was just telling you uh, a little earlier. I've, uh, since I stopped drinking, I've become quite a bit bougie. I'm sitting here uh, drinking some bougie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> sitting here drinking some LaCroix and I got a Zevia beside me. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, it's been a busy week, uh, especially for schoolwork, dude. I had an assignment and a quiz this week, plus our final draft of the group project uh, was due yesterday. So, yeah, uh, a lot going on. It's like the end of the semester, like as that's approaching, it seems like professors think, Oops, I need more grades. So let's throw it all at them at once. So it's it's quite frustrating because I'm like, yeah, well, this is also a busy season at church. We got a lot going on with the podcast. Like there's just a lot going on in my life. And I'm like, all right, we had this nice flow, this nice routine. And now you're like, oh, hey, it's Tuesday. By the way, you got a quiz on Friday. I don't have yeah, time to do that. When am I going to study? Yeah. yeah. When am I, when am I going to take it? is my thing because I just literally don't have time during the week to do this kind of stuff. Like this past Friday, I got done with my small group, left there around eight, came home, did the homework assignment and the quiz and had to have it done by 11 because they're an hour ahead in East Tennessee. So yeah, it was, it was like that. That was, that was my life. So it's, uh, it is what it is. Uh, last night, I was working on that paper, but I got most of my stuff done. And so I had a surprise project for a friend. I was telling Will about this before the episode. She's a missionary who's getting married to a guy who works at uh, one of the churches we support in Colombia. 
And so she's back in town getting stuff together for that. So they're having her wedding shower this week. So this will definitely air after that. And I don't think she listens to the show anyway. But uh, I, I do know the person who asked me to uh, to work on the video listens to this, uh, the show. So hi, Melissa. We'll shout out to, to her and uh, her dad's company, Starfish SEO. So yeah, a little shout out for you guys. Anyway, so my friend who, who's getting married, her fiance only speaks Spanish. And he recorded a video for her and Melissa put together the video stuff. But then she left to go to Peru on a mission trip and asked me if I could add the captions. So they had the English translations and the video. I just needed to put the captions in there. Well, it's been about 10 years since I've really spoken any Spanish, but it wasn't too bad. There's a few times he said her name. So I was like, okay, I got that. I, I know that one. There's a few other words that I could like, I could pick up on, you know, and stuff. And so I was able to get it as close as possible to it. There's a couple of sections I'm like, uh, I, he said a lot really quickly. And I'm like, okay, I probably stretched it out a little bit much, but you know, there's only like one or two people who are going to be there who actually speak Spanish. So I'm not terribly concerned about it, you know, but you know, it, it is what it is. <laughs> I will say this. I sent it to the person who's hosting the party and uh, I'm pretty sure she speaks Spanish or at least knows a little bit and she said it was really good. So there you go. That, that works. And then uh, Will was picking on me before the episode. I'm kind of dressed nice. I got to do the video announcements again at church today. So normally I'm behind one of the cameras when we're recording them. But it is really a lot of fun for me to be in front of the camera. Especially when I'm not the one directing. Like with the podcast, I'm normally like directing us and like telling Will, hey, re-say that, but say it this way or re-say it and don't use this word, stuff like that. But so this was a lot of fun being the one told that and not having to think about it. Just read the script, look at the camera, smile, that kind of stuff. So, and you know, smiling is really easy for me. So. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I took a took a picture while we were doing that because I go over there on my lunch break, and so I took a picture and posted it on um, social media to my story. And uh, our creative director sent me a text. She was like, "Dude, you look so excited in that photo." I'm like, "Well, you know how much I love doing this. I was excited, <laughs> so nah, it was a lot of fun." We'd like to welcome our newest patron, Colada. Thank you for your support. It's because of listener support that we're able to create this show. So, huge shout out. Thank you. Yeah. Saving money is hard, especially when you can't use production data to save. <laughs> Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you not only establish a real plan, but on taking action on that plan so that you can live your best life. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances with the help of Level Up. And there's a compounding impact of making better financial decisions that will pay for itself. Level Up has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are 
in your financial journey. And it's really nice because if you are just starting out your career, he's got a plan for you. If you've been at it for several years and you're like, hey, I'm starting to think about retirement, he's got a plan for you. And Lucas is also a fiduciary for his clients, which means that he's not here to sell you a product, but to help guide you to a better financial situation. So you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics you've probably faced and interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their careers. And you can learn a whole lot more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. When you start a new software project, you probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about how to set up useful and realistic test data because you don't have anything to test. In general, by the time you start thinking about it, your application has reached a level of complexity that does not make it easy. Additionally, you'll be tempted to try and create your sample data set in kind of a hacky short-term manner. And while such solutions can work for a little while or can be uh, treated as if they almost work for a long time, uh, their shortcomings become pretty obvious after a while. In particular, you'll start to notice that bugs are occurring in production that should have been caught in development, if only the developers had had good data to test with. Yeah. As your application ages, there are numerous reasons to start paying better attention to the way that you manage sample data for use by developers. Not only does this enable more agility within your development workflow, but it can make troubleshooting a lot easier. Also, having a clean way to generate sample data on developer machines makes it much, much faster to onboard new team members. If you make the generation of sample data into a repeatable process, it also makes it easier to do repeatable system testing from a known good state. Done properly, the generation of sample data becomes a first-class portion of your application development workflow. As code evolves, your sample data should also evolve in a way that makes sure that it remains useful for testing how the system will behave in production. Now, the reason I wrote this episode is because I ran into a situation where my local test data was not sufficient. It was like badly not sufficient. There's like five or six different entities I needed filled in just to get to a place where I could create the problem I needed to test. And this is kind of a, a situation that you'll see. Now, this sounds a lot like QA stuff, but if you make this a development responsibility, you get several distinct advantages out of it. In particular, it tightens the feedback loop between development and QA because you're catching stuff before they catch it. And when they find stuff, you can replicate it quickly locally and then fix the bug and go on. It also makes it quicker to set up a new environment, whether that is a new environment for a new developer or an environment being used in other parts of the development process, possibly including quality assurance, like they could use your sample data as a starting point for their stuff. I've actually done that with QA when I was building something as a, a back-end service that was going to be consumed by almost all of our applications. It was like a really big enterprise-level thing. And QA was like, there's not a front-end. I don't know how to test this. And so I trained them up on uh, on how to use Postman, but I also created the sample data and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to make sure it works before I ever tell you to test it. And then you make sure it, it matches the expectations. So here's the data that I'm using and here's how I created it. And it made it easier on them. It really, really did. Yeah. I actually got, uh, I want to say a compliment, but like 
accommodation sounds like I'm like in the military or something. I'm trying to think of like the right term for it, but basically the opposite of a write-up, you know, a nice thing put in my like profile about that. So. The opposite of a write-up is being left alone, <laughs> <laughs> which is also positive. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. So guys, in this episode, we'll be discussing some things that you need to consider when you start trying to generate sample data for developers in a predictable manner. Although we aren't really getting into best practices in this episode, we're going to discuss some of the basics that you need to think about when you start planning out your approach. Yeah, and I didn't really state it in the outline, but this is obviously not full-on testing data, right? This is just getting data where, hey, I can debug and I can quickly get into a situation that is similar to what's in production so I can test. You know, it's not a full-fledged integration suite test or, you know, those kind of like heavy-duty stuff. This is just basic considerations to think about. Yeah. Because I wanted to, you know, to do that later, but there's a lot more stuff there once you get into that level. So let's first talk about why you need to have good sample data in your local working environment. And I'm pretty sure most of the audience understands a lot of these points, but just in case. Sparsely populated local development databases are really fast, and this speed can mask performance and data integrity issues. You know, something can happen in production and cannot happen in your local or worse QA environment, then it will consistently surprise you in production because it'll get out there and you just get hit. Yeah, it's it's always fun. And I've been in situations where it was like we we had this issue in production and we were looking at it going, okay, well, we're management was going, well, why why didn't we catch this before it got there? It's like, well, we just we didn't have the the data. We didn't know about it until until it was under load. Yeah. So old school DBA was like, oh, so you want me to just like pull the production data down to development for you? I can do that. And we're like, yeah. uh no, no, we don't yeah. want that. No, we'll talk about the, that here a little bit. Yeah. Because that's a whole nother can of worms. Yeah. When you when you have appropriate test data in your local environment, you can actually do reasonable uh, sanity checks without getting QA involved. And this, again, tightens the feedback loop, but it also makes it where you can confidently push stuff out and know that like the QA is not going to be irritated at you because you missed something just, you know, blindingly obvious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This test data also makes it easier for you to quickly troubleshoot new scenarios that come up. Let's say you find there's an issue with a certain column value that's null in only one particular use case. It's a lot less effort to null out that column as needed instead of having to completely manually create all the required test data from scratch every time you need to test it. Right. And this is, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about later is the ability to to nuke and pave that data set quickly really facilitates that because you you do the nuke and pave, you change that piece, you do the test, and then you nuke it again. So it's it's super handy. And as you make schema and system changes, having appropriate sample data is also going to force you to write appropriate data migration code. So if you're doing you know, database migrations, which I, which I hope you are, this catches it earlier in the process rather than putting it off 
until you try to deploy and it breaks in the QA or production environment. So next, why shared development databases are a bad thing? I straight up said evil. You did. <laughs> you did. And it'll, it'll be in the show notes. But uh, yeah, it can be tempting to use a single database for all developers to make it easier to have appropriate test data. I mean, that makes sense in a certain way. However, there are a lot of downsides and far more of them than there are upsides to that approach. Yeah. And that's before you get into network connectivity, you know, stopping the whole team from working because it's a, a shared database now. This approach really gets you when a single developer makes a bunch of changes because they can break things for the entire team, right? Like I, I worked at a company where there were two of us you know, on the same team working on the same product. And the other guy would come in about 10 o'clock in the morning. And that's when he started his day. And he rode a bike to work and, you know, and then he worked till whenever. I don't know exactly when he would actually stop. But I would come in in the morning and he hadn't checked his code in, but he had done Entity Framework stuff and done migrations. And so the database was broken and I couldn't get any work done. And I got in at six. So half of my day was gone. Wow. And that happened... You know, it happened once a week there for a while. Mm. I'd lose a half day and then they're like, well, you're not getting anything done. And it was a contract position. It's like, well, I can't. Well, can't you come in later? It's like, well, why should my schedule be subject to this? Like, you've got a, you've got something dumb going on here. Like, why am I the victim? And it really sets you up in a, in a really bad spot. And I'm sure you've got stories as well. <laughs> like, I've never seen this actually go well for any great length of time because these kind of databases are everyone's responsibility the data ends up being kind of no one's responsibility you know it tends to result in poor quality data that causes problems in the app and i like i've seen that a lot especially when you're building something like and the data the data that you need in the first two sprints, the structure changes and stuff, and or you add a lot more, and now it's you basically have to have that new stuff for the app to work in like sprints five and six. Yeah. But it's not there if you have that data from sprint one. Yeah, or the data from sprint one has a column that's null that you later discover, hey, this really shouldn't be null. Yeah, but you never went and backfilled it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've run into that a lot. People, you know, if they are not forced to use migration code and stuff, they'll just go in and change the table schema. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, this is one of those cases where we try to engineer things and we leave human nature out of it, and it never works when you do that. And shared databases is a prime example of that. Um, it's a tragedy of the commons type setup. They also are a real problem when you try to load test, uh, stress test, or you do you know really big system changes because now everybody that uses that system has to coordinate, and it can be a bottleneck in your uh, your your project timeline essentially because now the thing whatever that is is on the critical path, and so you get people arguing, you know, on top of all that. Um, I worked at a company where. You know, we had a load issue at one of our clients and we were trying to test it locally in our shared dev database. 
and somebody created like 95 million rows in this one table, which is great, except when they're loading it, none of us can get any work done. And then, you know, like when the indexes are building and all this other stuff, you know, he tried to do it where it was, you know, where there was as little pain as possible, but it was a core table. And, you know, we were just screwed. We're just sitting there, you know, twiddling our thumbs for five or six hours. So you don't want that. Um, This is like one of those things that you really, really need to avoid, even though it sounds great. Speaking of sounding great. Yeah. The the next one, why can't I just copy production? Um, we, we've kind of hinted at this already a little bit. A while back in the early days, before my time in development. Uh, uh, some of it wasn't before your time. There's places that still do this. Oh, I know it's there's places that still do it, but it's not common anymore. And it hasn't been common right. for, for a while. So, but, you know, it, it was... It was common for developers to just work off a copy of the production database. However, the modern regulatory environment, it's probably not a good idea to do that anymore. Yeah, especially if you've got health data or any kind of personally identifiable stuff. I mean, even stuff like email addresses, right? Like that's your client list. And your boss probably, if they thought about it, really doesn't want a developer to have open-ended access to that where they can walk out of the building with it. Yeah. Because, I mean, if it's on your, your your dev laptop and it gets stolen, guess what? It's gone. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's pretty dangerous. Um, now, your, your prod database is probably a realistic depiction of what real-world data currently looks like. Um, and that's why it's tempting to do this. But it also adds complications when you try to copy prod and you need to do things like make large uh, structural changes and then update your sample data to, you know, whatever the latest is in prod because now they get out of sync. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You could potentially use a copy of production and sanitize the data to remove that sensitive information. However, there's always going to be that risk that you'll forget to sanitize it you'll miss something or like something won't run properly or that you did something dumb in the sanitization algorithm. Like you use rot 13 encryption or something, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. that's, uh, I've seen people do some really, really strange things or just like, well, every time I see the name Jim, I change it to Bob. It's like, that's great. I could go through there and every time I see Bob, I change it to Jim and it's not anonymous anymore. Like that's not good enough. Um, it, it's really hard to get this right and to keep it right, especially on a system that is currently under development because it just gets missed, especially if you've got enough people where you have to worry about it. The other fun problem that you see a lot with this is that your production database may actually be too large to work with effectively on a development machine. Uh, in terms of disk space, You know that's not as big of a deal now as it used to be. But if you think in terms of network bandwidth to update that thing, you know, you got to move it across the wire and you got 20 developers. And they all need to get, you know, they need to get a refresh today. That That is not a trivial amount of bandwidth if you have a, you know, couple gigabyte database and you're they're all remote. Because, you know, there's going to be that one guy that's like on the cheapest cable connection. You know, the guy that you don't really know what his face looks like because you just like visualize pixels when you see him. That guy's got to get that database too. Yep. 
And every team's got guy. one. <laughs> yeah. Say what? I said, I, I've known a few of those guys. Yeah. So, yeah. Some of them because just to where they live, but others because of how cheapness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So developers really need to be in charge of local sample data instead of QA, you know, for developer purposes. And there's a lot of reasons for this. But, you know, let's, let's go back to why people are tempted to take the QA sample data that they hopefully are generating. Um, it, it is tempting to try to reuse it. And you can do it for a while, especially early on, but it becomes a problem uh, over time. And there are a variety of reasons for it. Yeah. So data set as understood by QA is different from what we need as developers. First off, if you're building anything new, you're going to need realistic sample data for it. And that's before QA even touches it because it's brand new. Yeah. How are you going to prove that it works? Yeah. And like, yeah, you can put in garbage data. Like I know people that just like face roll on their keyboard to to generate names and stuff. And yeah. that's great until you have to correlate that data and it's all just, you know, line noise looking stuff. Or, you know, like they put like every, you know, every name field contains a valid Perl program. Um, that's well, not really a place you want to be. I, I asked someone once, I was like, you know, how did you generate that? Um, that key. And I was like, yeah, did you create a key generator or something? And it, it gave it to you. I was like, Oh no, I just set my cat on the keyboard. I, I suspect that that happens a lot more than we want to think about, <laughs> uh, which probably means there's like hot zones on the keyboard that get more, you know, yeah. I, I'm pretty pressing. sure the person was joking, but <laughs> yeah, but they might not you never know. Yeah, sometimes you say stuff like that as a joke because people take it as a joke and then they don't understand that, no, it's really true. Yeah. Uh, I had a friend that, you know, for years told us he's going to donate his body to science and that actually is what he ended up doing. And it was the same kind of thing. It's like, he really did? So, yeah, we really got off topic on that one. A lot of QA departments also largely deal with integration and load testing and user acceptance testing and those kind of things. Whereas as a developer, you're dealing with like data coming out of the database or coming across the wire from somewhere. It's not in the form that the users and other outsiders interact with. It's data in the innards of the system. And so it's a completely different perspective a lot of times because there's stuff that you don't let out over the wire. Right? Like a user's password comes into the system, it does not leave. So if you're using QA sample data, unless they're cramming those things in, you really can't do anything with it. And you're probably, hopefully, you know, hashing the password at the very least. Hopefully you're not actually implementing that yourself in the first place. But there, there is a lot of data like that that either never leaves the system or <laughs> never enters the system or it comes in from some third-party system in a completely different way and QA doesn't interact with that, right? Like some other process just dumps to a table in your system. So you have to be aware that there's a lot of that stuff that QA can't generate because they don't touch it. Finally, under this one, leaving QA in charge of sample data creation for developers, it adds more work to the QA team. Um, and very likely they're understaffed and overloaded in work. 
Yeah, I don't know anybody that has had a really good time trying to find QA people. Like they're harder to find than developers, and it's a pain to find developers. But like it's, they're a whole different breed, and you get a you know especially getting good ones. It, mm-hmm. Like that's you really don't want to overburden those people with things that are not their primary role because you probably don't have enough. Yeah. So next, we're going to talk about what we mean by realistic test data. Yeah, and put the air quotes around realistic. <laughs> yeah, you could probably tell in my voice. Frequently, developers will generate test data in a loop. This is a quick and dirty approach, and the data tends to be fairly uniform. The uniformity, though, means that sample data may not accurately reflect what you'll encounter in the real world. Uh, right. I, I don't know if I would say may. I, I might replace that with will not. <laughs> yeah, I, because I mean, even even little things, right? Like the way your database uh, indexes get shaped by data that's input in a loop versus data that's kind of statistically random. Like those indexes will act differently. Mm-hmm. And, and so, if you're load testing, like you're not actually doing a load test, you know, with what would happen in production, and you know, at scale, this uh, this really falls down pretty quick. Now, when you generate sample data, you're going to want a broad range of values, you know, or a broad range of numbers for numeric values, a broad range of lengths and content for strings. So, you know, hey, there may be some special characters. You know, you're going to have a, you know, Mr. O'Connell going into your database. You know, Mr. O'Connell checks for uh, SQL injection, <laughs> whether you want, <laughs> you know, really quick, because uh, you'll find it. You know, these little Bobby tables, O'Connell. Uh, as it were, you also have to have things like realistic numbers of items and lists. You know, for instance, you want test orders to have a range of items in that order, not, hey, every order has three items in it, you know, because that'll manifest in your UI and you won't see that, hey, when it has five items, it gets cut off. You know, there's some weird CSS thing that happens because, you know, not that CSS ever has weird things happen to anybody that's on this call, but for the oh, rest no. of the, you people. Yeah. Never. <laughs> It's I haven't I don't try had not to touch it. <laughs> I haven't had any weird CSS stuff in at least how long have I been working on the API? Two weeks now. Yeah, <laughs> on, on API <laughs> stories for the last two weeks. So yeah, I haven't had any CSS issues for two straight weeks because I haven't been on the UI. <laughs> hey, don't worry <laughs> about your roof leaking in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> so. You also want to be careful with dates in your test data. Uh, It doesn't take long for realistic test data to become unrealistic if dates are in the mix. Oh, yeah. Uh, This means that you're going to want dates to be set relative to the current date instead of being completely static. And it also kind of depends on what, what you're doing with them, too. Yeah, and and by the way, you're also going to want historical data, right? So they can't all be done that way. Yeah. Um, And this is why I talk about the whole nuke and pave thing because it puts you in that mindset of, okay, I'm going to regenerate this thing. If there is something I need to be persistent, then I need to make it that way, not rely on the system's existing state to keep it that way. Yeah, and you also have to look at, like, when you're considering dates, like, what your regulatory stuff is because the way you handle things like historic stuff may be different. I, I've I have personally faced this where it was yep. like, all right, 
if it was within the past five years, it's handled this way. But if it was more than five years old, it's handled a different way. Right. And and that may be five years old, you know, five years from now, or it may be a cutoff date at some yeah. point in the past, too. I, yeah. And yeah, it may be a different cutoff date in different places, too. So it gets it gets gnarly tricky. really quick. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you deal with like, uh, you know, dealing with educational data, for instance, you know, for governments. There's there's a lot of stuff that you you really want good sample data. Otherwise, you have to think about it every time you open the app. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, you're going to uh, want to make sure you have a realistic distribution of data, especially on a per-user basis. So, like, a lot of developers, if they're in charge of making their own sample data, um, and, you know, I'm the guilty party with my hand up right here, you end up with, like, one or two users that have thousands of transactions and the rest of the users have none because those are the two logins you use when you're testing. And you don't really want that, you know, because when you start rolling that up and aggregating it, now everything looks weird. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Not that I have any experience of that like today. Now we're going to talk about why you need to be able to quickly nuke and pave your data. I don't know that that's an actual industry term, but I feel like I feel like it ought to be. Those are Will's words, not mine. Yeah. In other words, completely destroy it and rebuild it where it doesn't look like anything went wrong. You're going to want developers to be able to quickly remove and rebuild their data, especially on larger teams, because developers will quickly have sample data for parts of the system that they didn't build. Yeah, I would almost go so far as like, hey, if you're breaking off and doing a feature branch, new could pay the data then so that everything's back in a known good state and pieces that you didn't add are now in there because your code probably relies on them if you've you know pulled from master lately yeah well being able to delete data without consequences will also make things like load testing a lot easier because you don't have to keep a massive data set around forever yeah it also makes it a lot safer when you update the data and you know this also ties into the the whole developer onboarding experience as well right like the setup of the sample data is streamlined in this approach because everybody does it all the time. There's no questions about how to do it. You know, the new developer can sit down. Hopefully you have uh, adequate documentation for how to do it. You spin it up, you cram the data in there and they have a working system that has realistic data loaded in it so that when you give them that initial bug to show them how the rest of your process works, they didn't just spend two weeks trying to get their system to actually start. Because I've worked at places where that was an issue, like the first two or three weeks of a new dev, you know, they they work a little ways, and they get to a certain point, and then they get completely derailed because their data is not good for the tests, and it you know, and they they can't tell what's going on. This could even make it possible to wipe and restore data at the beginning of every new story, so that any bad data that was created for testing purposes or anything like that is no longer a problem. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's like it's like having a kitchen that you can't clean. How long are you going to cook in it? Uh, now, I know some people who are going to who would stretch that one for quite some time because we we've, we've got the same friends. Yeah, I was going to say, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not something you you want to keep around a long time, right? Because you know, like you're testing and you're like, okay, I'm going to run this thing and you know let it run through and it it puts some crap data in the database. You don't want that there six months from now you know, causing something unrelated to break. 
And and so if you could just kind of wipe it and you know restart, it's a lot easier. It is. And so here's a controversial opinion by me that this may get some emails or people will be like, hey, that's really a good point. I'm not sure which. Maybe a little both. Yeah. Probably both. And you know, you know, please join the uh join the channel. <laughs> And actually have a conversation about it because uh, that could be that could actually be fun. I would contend that sample data should probably not be created at the end of the database migration process, and I have a reason for it. You know, it, it's really common to do it that way, right? Like that's how all your like seed data stuff in Entity Framework works. Um, if you're doing, you know, most of your da- database migration toolkits, they're like, oh, you you seed the data at the end. And usually seed it with the entity model that you're using. And I don't think that's a really good idea because that's not what happens in production. You know, it database migrations get applied to existing data and sometimes those migrations are bad. You don't want those to not be under test at, you know, at the developer level. Yeah. Since your production data was not all entered after migration, this means that your sample data no longer reflects what could happen in production. Right. And by the way, that is what will happen in production when you don't catch it because, you know, we're all kind of messy. Developers are not like accountants. We're not known for our tidiness uh, in general. And so you, you want to mitigate that in, in anything that you do. Additionally, if you generate your sample data in dev only as part of your migration process, then you can also quickly roll back a migration when you're testing and then you regenerate the data and then you go again. And so this actually means that you can test your migration code multiple times, especially if it's complicated, like you're moving tables around and you're slicing pieces out and moving, you know, different places. This facilitates that without it, uh, you know, being a thing where you take a snapshot of the database and you restore. Now, if your sample data is all applied at the end and is expensive, this means that small changes in your system are going to require much larger changes in your sample data generation code. Right. So you may be creating an entity that's got three columns you know, early on, and then later as you migrate, you add new columns and you set them to some default value. Okay, why can't you just leave those in there? If you put them in early, you don't have to go change that entity every single time a, a column gets added or have weird stuff go on. Now, this gets annoying if you start doing things like consolidating database migrations. I know you can do that in Entity Framework. There's ways to do it. I did it a while back. It was not pleasant because we hadn't done it for two years. But eventually you get hundreds of migration files and you, you've got to fix that. It's starting to slow, slow down your build times. More than likely, what you're going to have to do in that situation is you're going to have to write something that exports the current content of the database out in some kind of format that you can read in. And that's the initial seed data. So you know you run the the initial migration that sets up all the stuff up to that cutoff point loads the initial data, and then you do migrations from there. So next, branching, merging, and source control considerations. Your code for generating sample data should live alongside the main application code in your source control. That's just that. It doesn't exactly have to be deployed with the rest of the application. Probably shouldn't be, really. But it can get really bad if this is out of sync with everything else. Yeah. And out of sync is not, you know, wildly out of sync. It's just like, Hey, we added a column. Yeah. And didn't it, does, set it, it doesn't take column. much 
to throw yeah. them off. Especially if it's a sequel script and everything else you're doing is not in sequel, which is my favorite anti-pattern for this sort of thing. Your sample data generation code should be broken up instead of being in a single massive file. Um, otherwise, you're going to have problems with merge conflicts when you change it. Um, especially with long-lived branches. Um, for instance, if you do merges in Azure uh, DevOps, when you have a file that has 20,000, 30,000 lines of code in it, trying to merge in the web editor is not pleasant. And it's really, honestly, not a whole lot better you know, inside even you know, first-class IDEs. You really want to avoid that. More files is how you do it. When you're working on a branch and need to change your sample in some way, either adding more, altering data with a migration, whatever, then the changes to the sample data should be done on the same branch. That way it all stays together through the rest of the software lifecycle. Right. Which means that, you know, if I did that and Beej and I are working together, I can go on vacation and go, hey, here's my branch. Can you finish this thing up? And he has the sample code that I used. And oh, by the way, if QA wants to use it and they want to generate data there that they're testing against, they can also do the same thing. Yeah, which is kind of what... Um, Collaboration's all about. Yeah, well, I was going to say, it's kind of what my friend did with, uh, you know, I was just tying in my my interest stuff when uh, when I worked on that video is she basically sent me the link to uh, to download it from the um, the work website. And just go from there. And so, yeah, it uh, it's just that same kind of thing where it's like, oh, hey, here's here's all the stuff you need to get to do this. And so you can do that. Yeah, uh, you're probably going to want to generate your sample data using the same programming language that you use day to day because you, you'll have utility methods. and You'll have stuff in there. Uh, but I want to caution you not to use your business objects for this. Um, and. The reason is, is that your business objects are versioned with where you are in your source control pipeline. They're not versioned with where you are in the database migration pipeline. And so when you start to try to cram stuff in there early in that migration pipeline, your business objects are going to get in the way. Because there'll be other data that it's trying to you know serialize and cram in the database for columns that are not there. Uh, which, by the way, like most of the frameworks out there don't, you know, they they use the you know, the entity classes for the seed data, which I think is a really strange thing that that's not a bigger problem than it is. Yeah. So next, we're going to talk about what nobody in development likes to think about except for Will. And that is the unhappy path. Two paths different. Wait, no. <laughs> Will, Will likes the unhappy path. I don't know I why. took the path that was less traveled fine. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, you're going to want to have data in the system that doesn't reflect everything working perfectly all the time. And this could be anything from failed transactions to users whose accounts are not completely set up, um, archived, deleted records, that sort of thing. And that is very important because I can tell you, we with some stuff when I was first starting out, we didn't do this uh, until... It got, it wasn't in production. It was in UAT that they found some stuff and were like, oh, yeah, even QA didn't catch it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and think about your reporting, right? Like you have a failed transaction. If it still shows up on a report 
that is used to make financial decisions, that's not good. And it's really easy to miss this stuff when you make sample data, but it's really vitally important that you include this kind of data, especially if you're going to be nuking and paving regularly, because like otherwise the data is not there. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons I advocate being able to do that quickly is because it forces you into a mindset of, okay, if I want this to be there, it has to, like, I have to make it be there. Yeah. Another situation where the unhappy path matters is the case of data migrations. Unhappy paths often have data that is different than the happy path. And this can cause migration problems and subtle bugs so that you're better off covering the situation locally as well. Right. Because you'll notice it when you're, you're developing because you're like actively iterating and looking over this stuff, you know, dozens of times potentially. Um, and a QA, as long as the data doesn't cause a test to fail, QA a lot of times will not see things. Right. They just, they're, they're looking for bugs and that's what they find, but they may not know something is a bug as much yeah. as we do, right? Like, because it could be covered up by the UI easily enough and be completely wrong, you know, coming out of the API or, you know, before that. Yeah, uh, I I can I can totally see that where the, the UI kind of like, because of the way that it transforms the data for display can completely hide an issue. This literally happened today. One of the developers on my team, he uh, he pushed up a PR and he's like, Hey, so discovered this problem while I was in there. My code didn't cause this problem, but it brought it to light because it changed how this was being displayed. And we, our PO wrote a story for, for addressing it, but he wanted to make sure like, he was like, Hey, this needs to be addressed. And it's not like, you know, Hey QA, this isn't a bug. It's, you know, yeah, it's just not a bug for the story. It is a bug, but it's not a bug with what I wrote because what I wrote just happens to be what's showing it now, which was was wise. I I actually really liked the way he did that. It was well handled. So now another thing that can uh, jump up and cause you problems is uh, boundary conditions or different types of data that your application deals with. And by type, I don't mean like the way that we as developers think of types, right? Like different subcategories in that particular type of data right so like we mentioned you know names that have multiple segments or like they have a you know o'connell you know with a an apostrophe in there or they have uh other characters you know different character sets those kind of things you need to be thinking about these sort of things as kind of boundary conditions and like for instance if your app handles monthly payments you should cover payments on the first the 28th days after the 28th february 29th you know, year end, those kind of things, because mm-hmm. those are different sets of things that can happen, right? Like if you go, okay, well, I do a monthly recurring payments. Well, if they're all, always on the first, every month has a first. Yeah. Within reason until some goober decides that there's going to be one that doesn't. But not every month has a 29th, right? So when you get close to the end of the month, now you need some data in there that says, okay, I have a recurring payment on the 29th. How do I handle that? So that yeah. you catch those kind of things earlier. Yeah. Uh, that that makes sense. Or um, frustrating thing that I have seen is when you're trying to register for something, and they want you to put in your your name. Your name is two letters, and they have yeah. a minimum of four characters. So you're like, 
all right, I'll put B dot J dot only characters. And I'm like, yeah. but so I, I, I just got curious and, you know, I, I, I have an Albanian keyboard. And so I was like, let me just see what happens if I put, you know, a character that's not an English character. Yeah. Nope. Rejected it. And I'm like, you know, little Anglo-centric there. I'm just like, yeah. And this is well, and a I Christian get dating it. app. So I was like, y'all, come on now. This is this is bad. Like I I I sent him a, a bug report for it. I'm like, yeah. yeah. I'm not I mean, I could see it if it's like you're on the other side of the planet from a language, but I mean, like uh, what is the the Spanish character? It looks like an N with a little tilde over the top. I forget what that. Yeah, Inye? I don't know the name that, of it. I know, uh, I know the character you're talking about. I just don't know the names of them. I'm, but I mean, you're going to run into people around here, like lots of them that have that in their name. Oh, I mean, I've run into <laughs> several people who have like apostrophes in their name. Yeah, like we we're just talking about O'Connell, but like yeah. it wouldn't accept it. And I'm like, yeah, this is bad. Or people who have two letter names. Right. That aren't initials. That just literally their name is not any longer than that. There's a really good article somewhere about things that developers don't understand about names or the yeah. stuff that developers frequently get get wrong. And it's a huge article. Like there's ones on addresses, names, those kind of things. You'll have to go find it on Google. But like when you really start digging into this stuff, there's a lot of it. Yeah. And and but so like, you want to that that was just something like when you started talking, I was I was thinking about that because like I have had several people suggest that particular, I'm trying not to name it, but that particular dating app um, to me, it's a Christian dating app. And I've had several people suggest it and I'm like, yeah, no. And here's why. And like one, I, I got, I was frustrated because of like not being able to use my name, but also like, they're not like, like this is a big app. It's not like a brand new one. This has been around for, since before I was married and so over a decade and yeah, like that. Yeah. Like when I see, when you see stuff like that in an app, it, it really hurts your confidence in everything else, especially if the app should be polished, mm -hmm. right? Like if it's a, you know, if you look at it, you go, yeah, this was made by a two person shop. That's one thing. But when they've got, you know, probably hundreds of developers and they can't get this right. I'm like, how bad is the rest of that? Like how, how much of my data is going to get leaked? Actually, one of the one of the best ones. I mean, if we're talking dating apps, um, one of the best ones that I have found is uh, made by his husband and wife team. <laughs> it's small and it's new, but it it's actually the quality of the app is really good. So yeah, so I mean, the thing is, is this data is application specific. You know, so for a given type in the system, you're going to want to make sure that you have a good mix of possible states, especially if those states are used in conditional statements within your code. So basically that you have coverage, essentially. It's not really test coverage. It's like data coverage for the that expression tree that you're going through. Um, but it's kind of the same thought. No. So if a property is used in arithmetic calculations, make sure that you have some records where the value is set to zero. Also, if you don't have data constraints keeping a value from being null, you're going to need to have some null values in there to see how your system handles it in different areas. Yeah. 
And and bear in mind, you don't know this, right? Because those get propagated all the way to the front end, and who knows what happens out there? Yeah, especially over time. Especially not the the front end developers. None of them know what's going on from the <sighs> developer in the room. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, is like it's hard to keep the whole app in your head and and go, oh, okay, yeah. where did this value actually come from? Like it's been transformed like eight or ten times by the time you see it on the UI. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. I was just being being silly because I do mostly yeah. front end development right now. So yeah, I just don't want to mad at me because I want to not do that. <clears throat> so, <laughs> Uh, you also have to think about zero states on stuff. And this is something that the place I work has been uh, really focused on a lot is, you know, what happens when there are no records or when there's no, you know, foreign key for this thing? What does this look like? And it probably should be something other than a blank, but you're going to want to include things, you know, like customers with no orders and those kind of deals. This helps you make sure that UIs and reports look right when some data is missing. So finally, data construction for easy troubleshooting. When you're creating your sample data, do so with an eye toward making troubleshooting as easy as possible. While realistic looking names sound nice, they aren't particularly helpful when you're trying to actually use the sample data. So a great example of this is a lot of database entities have name or title attributes or friendly name, something like that, that gets displayed on the UI. Well, you can use these to make it clear what that entity actually is supposed to represent in terms of a test case. So you for, you might create a customer called No Orders Jones instead of Bob Williams because you know that, hey, No Orders means he's got no orders. Right? And so you use this guy to test the zero state for orders. People don't just do that already? No. Wow. But... Like, like, literally, I'm reading this. I'm going, you have to tell people to do that. That's like the most obvious thing in the world to me. It is obvious, but, but when you're generating data and you're doing it in an undisciplined fashion, yeah, it's, it's very easy to forget to do this or to do it once. And then you change the data for one ticket that you're working on. And now it doesn't match what the reality is because you now that pay. that I could see a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I see it. A lot. I can see yeah. it a lot, too. <laughs> it's called <laughs> hitting F5. <laughs> so this becomes especially important with more complex testing scenarios, especially if those scenarios deal with configuration that isn't immediately obvious. Right. So like we we have a range of products and some of them are turned on or turned off or they're different configurations. And so we have to actually name stuff so that you can tell, hey, because that that gets evaluated in various conditional expressions to determine how the app deals with certain situations. Like it can be wildly different in some of those cases. And so you'll find that you have to do that. And you really don't want to be trying to generate that data by reverse engineering the system. You want the data to grow with the system so that you don't have to do that. And this also is another really good reason to do the frequent nuke and pave with your sample data because like over time, you'll get small changes that accumulate and they make stuff not match. Yeah. And then you get a false positive or a false negative. Yeah, uh, that's that's really frustrating because you're expecting things to be a certain way and then they're not. And it's because you've made those changes. So guys, having good sample test data in your local development environment is absolutely critical for being able to effectively write code on your local machine and actually get stuff done. 
ideally, this test data will reflect a lot of the sort of scenarios that you will probably encounter in production. And notice I used a lot of weasel words there about maybe, kind of, probably, because it's never going to be perfect. But it does make troubleshooting easier. And it also increases the likelihood that you will spot potential problems earlier in development where they are cheaper and easier to fix. Finally, it makes it a lot easier to onboard new developers and reduces the amount of friction developers experience when beginning to work on a different part of the system. That pretty much wraps us up. Beej, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? So guys, a lot of times in life, we have to make decisions based on limited data or on a sampling of available information. For example, what car to buy. You're not going to go out and test drive every single car on the market, or not even every type of car. So you make your decisions based on groupings and samples of the data. This helps you narrow down your choices. Now, obviously, the larger your sample size, the better you're going to be able to uh, make these decisions. Unfortunately, we aren't always able to have those larger sample sizes but we still have to make decisions based on what we have. So when you're in a situation like that, an understanding that you may not have all the information or that a small sample is not always representative of the larger group is going to help you, you know, in just knowing that, hey, I'm having to make this decision, but I may not have all the information or this is a small sample. So the decision I make may have to be changed later that that is going to help you in the long run. Well, guys, that's pretty much all I've got. Check us out in the aftercast where we're going to talk about some anti-patterns for sample test data generation and how developer sample data differs from QA sample data. Catch y'all next time. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.